Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. Have you ever had high expectations for something and then it didn't deliver? Maybe it was that vacation that you were really excited about, but then it rained the whole time you were there. Or maybe it was that new restaurant that you couldn't wait to try and you show up and the food wasn't as good as advertised. Or maybe it was that movie. I mean, you've been waiting six months for it to come out and you go and see it and it wasn't quite as great as you thought it was going to be. Or maybe, just maybe, you've experienced this national phenomenon in our society called a Pinterest fail. If you don't know what Pinterest is, it's just a website that you can go to to get some ideas for some crafts or from baking ideas and some other things. But oftentimes what has happened for so many people is they go and get this idea and then they try it themselves and it ends up being a terrible thing. Let me just share with you a few of my favorite of these Pinterest fails. Here is crayon art. And the top one is the original and then somebody tried to copy it and that's what they turned out with. Here's another one. Nothing sounds better than a waffle iron cookie, right? Until you actually try to make an awful iron cookie in your home. How about this one? That's a cake for a birthday. Not as good for the actual. And then this is my favorite. If you've ever done family pictures, you know that the bottom one is really what the reality is, right? Now, the reason I share those with you is because we come to a part of the Bible where I think God's people actually had some pretty high expectations, but their expectations weren't met. However, as we're going to discover together, these unmet expectations had a purpose in God's story. And I want to say the same to us this morning. Sometimes our unmet expectations have a purpose in our story as well. And that's the question I'd like us to consider in our time together this morning. How do we live out our story when our expectations aren't met. More specifically, when we're following Jesus and it's not always cracked up to how we think it's gonna be, how should we live? Now, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series as a church together since January, a series we've called His Story, Our Story, and we're really just looking at the big picture story of the Bible together. In fact, here's the sentence we've used often. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story. It's the story, and it is also our story. And so week after week, we've kind of looked at some of the bigger stories in the Bible that help us see the big picture. We started in creation, and we've made our way through. And if you were here last week, Jeff shared the part of the story known as the exile, which I got to say, it's probably one of the lowest points in God's entire story where years and years after warning his people by sending prophets about their sin and their idolatry, and they continue to refuse to obey, God finally sends his people into exile. As we learned last week, the Babylonian Empire comes and they destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple, and then they carry God's people off to a foreign land. Maybe the saddest picture of this part of God's story is actually found in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel was a prophet during this time of exile, and he's given this vision. You can read it for yourself, but essentially the vision is the presence of God, the glory of God leaving the temple. 
And the idea here is that God is no longer present with his people. They have been moved into exile. And yet, it's only one chapter later in Ezekiel chapter 11 where God makes this promise to his exiled people. Therefore say, Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. After 70 years of being in exile, what does God say? A remnant of people will return. In fact, look at what God says about this remnant in the very next verses. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. I want you to remember that prophecy this morning. Because as we pick up our story, the time for the return has come. If you're following on your notes, after 70 years, the people return from exile from, with, with high expectations of glory. Excuse me. The people return from exile with high expectations of glory. Surely the people thought this would be the time when God would finally establish his kingdom. And then just as Ezekiel promised there, that they would be given new hearts and a new spirit so with that, let me invite you to open up your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 22. And we're literally just picking up where Jeff left off last week. You can find this on page 373 of the Black Bibles that we have underneath the seat there. If you want to follow along, I always encourage you to grab one of theirs. Now, as you're turning there, let me just explain where we're going to go together this morning. First, I thought it might be important for us to kind of get a 10,000-foot view of this part of God's story, and so we're going to talk about the big picture. But then I thought it would be really helpful for us to dig deeper into the story itself, and so we're going to look at a particular passage to help us better get an idea. And then last, but certainly not least, I really want to make sure we connect this part of God's story to your story and to my story still today. So let's start with the 10,000-foot view. The year is 538 B.C., just six decades after the exile had begun, when Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians and issues this amazing edict that allows the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. In fact, this is how the book of Second Chronicles, which is the book of history of the Old Testament, ends. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is the last verse of the historical books of the Old Testament. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Now these are actually also the opening words of the book of Ezra, which is one of the five books of the Bible written during this part of God's story, along with Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites right now. How amazing must it have been to have this edict from this emperor to say, basically, I've heard from your God that you're supposed to go back and rebuild your city and your temple. They must have been thinking, at last, after 70 years of exile, the time has come for us to return home and to rebuild. The exile is over. It's time to go home. 
when I was in college, there were a few things I looked more forward to was when I finished that last test on finals. And I got in my car, and I drove 500 or five hours north, and I got home. I got home to my own bed. I got home to my own mother's home-cooked meals. There's something just about going back home. And finally, the Israelites are able to go back home. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they go on to describe how these exiles return to the promised land and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and their society. Now, somewhat surprisingly, you'll notice if you read this part, only a small group of people actually end up returning back to their homeland. They're known as the remnant. If you're following on your notes there, it says, only a small remnant returns to Jerusalem. Only a small remnant actually returns to Jerusalem. Ezra tells us the total amount is a mere 42,360. Now think about that. There were way more Jewish people than that. But most of them chose to remain where they were and assimilate with the culture that they had been placed in. They had given up on God's dream of them being the chosen people. We're going to talk more about that later, but we know from history that the exiles actually returned in three different waves. The first wave started in 538 BC, immediately after Cyrus issues this decree. And this group was led by a man named Zerubbabel, which honestly is just the best name in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? You want to say that? Ready? Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel comes to Jerusalem and he starts to rebuild the temple. However, things don't go very well. It's not until Ezra, who was a priest, leads a second wave of people back in 458 B.C. that they really begin to make any progress. In fact, if you're following there, Ezra works to rebuild the temple and establish proper worship. Ezra works to rebuild the temple and establish proper worship. If you are going to read through the book of Ezra, that's what it's all about. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's establish our society once again. Then the last wave shows up in 445 BC, and they're led by this amazing leader by the name of Nehemiah. There's also a book about him, right? He leads this third wave back to Jerusalem. And if you're following, Nehemiah works to rebuild the walls and lead religious revival. Nehemiah works to rebuild the walls and lead religious revival. Revival. It's really one of the best, most exciting books, honestly, in the Old Testament. You're, this guy who's this incredible leader is given this ability by God to accomplish this amazing thing in a short amount of time. However, I just want to say it's not all good news. Despite Ezra and Nehemiah trying as hard as they can, Nehemiah, the book, does not end very well. The people are returning to their old ways of sin and idolatry and social justice. And Nehemiah is just frustrated because he's unable to change them. The promise that we saw in Ezekiel 11, friends, I just got to say, when you get to the end of this section of God's story, it doesn't look like it's taking shape. These people don't have a new spirit. They don't have a new heart. While some of the promises were kind of partially fulfilled, it's clear this can't be what God was talking about and promising his people. In fact, if you're following on your notes here, the three prophets who speak during this time, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, what do they talk about? They all point towards something more. They all point towards something more. And so again, as we come to this, the end of this part of God's story, let me just say it this way. Expectations are left unmet And God's story seems to end. 
Expectations are left unmet and God's story seems to end. If you were here last week, uh, Pastor Jeff used this great illustration to kind of show us how the up and down nature of God's story has been throughout this. And I was thinking about it this week and it's like, this was supposed to be an up. This was supposed to be a great moment. Expectations were sky high and yet it kind of peters off in the end. Things don't turn out how they hoped they would turn out. That's the 10,000-foot view of where we are in God's story right now. Now, to help us to get a better understanding of this part of the story and how it's going to connect to our story, I want you to turn just a few pages over from 2 Chronicles 36, if you still have it open. And we're going to look at Ezra chapter 3 together. As we pick up the story, again, I'll just remind you, God's people have returned. This is the first wave of people, and they're going to rebuild the temple. So let's see what they go through together, picking up the story in verse 1, which says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. I love this verse. Here we have a beautiful picture of the oneness of a part of this remnant of people. Notice the phrase, the people assembled together as one. God had scattered the people to all different parts of the nations in exile, but now he is gathering them together as one as they return. If you're following on your notes, in unity, they gather to rebuild the temple. So far, so good. Verse 2. Then Joshua, son of Jezodadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheotiel, and his associates. I just make that stuff up, by the way. I have no idea how to pronounce some of that. (laughs) Began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Zerubbabel, he was the kind of the government authority. Interestingly, he was a descendant of David. And then Joshua, he was the religious authority. And it was Joshua, along with the other religious leaders, who began this process of rebuilding the altar. For 70 years, they had not been able to worship God. And so the first thing they do is they gather and they build the altar together again. Things are looking good. Verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Really important here. Is everybody happy that the Jews have returned home? No. A lot of people are actually really unhappy and they oppose the work that they're going to begin to be doing. In fact, you can read in Nehemiah that this remnant faced incredible trials, incredible opposition, incredible hardship as they attempt to rebuild. They're living constantly in the fear of being attacked and ridiculed. And yet, if you're following on your notes still, they did not let fear keep them from obedience. They did not let fear keep them from obedience. After finishing the altar and offering the sacrifices, starting in verse 7, they actually begin the work of rebuilding the temple itself. Look at it. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. This is really kind of cool. This is identical language to the language that's used when Solomon builds the first temple. Again, things are looking good so far. Expectations are sky high. Verse 8. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the people began the work. 
They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Now look down at verse 10. This is really the heart of this story. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. If you've read the Psalms, those words will be very familiar to you. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now would you read verse 12 out loud with me on your notes there. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And then it ends this way. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Isn't that interesting? For some of the people who had returned, this was a moment of great joy and yet for others, it was a Pinterest fail. Even Haggai, who I mentioned is one of the prophets who spoke during this time. He says this about the rebuilding of this temple. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? This isn't quite what the people had in mind when they returned. It's not even as impressive as the first temple. And more importantly, friends, don't miss this in this part of God's story. There's no mention at all ever of the glory of God returning to fill the temple here. This cannot be. This cannot be what God promised his people in Ezekiel chapter 11. Even though it's cause for joy, it doesn't fulfill God's promise, nor does it meet their expectations. But the story's not over. In fact, Here's the rest of Haggai's message to this remnant of faithful people. Starting in the very next verse, notice what he says. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is important. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And this, in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. A day is coming, Haggai says, when God will fulfill his covenant once for all and his glory will return to dwell among his people. A glory we see here even greater than the glory that filled Solomon's temple. If you're following, friends, God has more in mind than a physical building for his glory. God has more in mind than a physical building for his glory. But when? How? When will the time come? Some of the very last words of the entire Old Testament, this part of God's story says this. Read Malachi 3.1 out loud on the screen with me, would you? 
I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. What a promise. He's going to come. And then, believe it or not, with those words, 400 years of silence are ushered in from God. Jeff likes to say, you know that little white page in between the New Test- Old Testament and the New Testament? That represents 400 years. No prophet, no sign of God's glory returning. Israel still being ruled by a foreign power. The people of God are left to wait. Can you imagine that kind of waiting? I was in Meyer just this last week through the self-checkout line. And of course, as it does every single time, the little red light goes off telling me I'm doing something wrong, and I had to wait a whole 30 seconds for the lady to come and fix my problem, and I'm impatient about that. 400 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Friends, think about that. Surely people are losing hope at that point. Surely many gave up on God's promise ever being fulfilled. How could they not? Generations of people not hearing a word from God, but then one day, We know the rest of the story. Elijah comes, just as God promised he would. And Mark opens his gospel with these words, Mark 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then this is our verse, Malachi 3.1. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Who is Mark talking about? Who prepared the way for Jesus? His name was John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say? Look just a few verses later. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Does that not sound like Ezekiel 11 or what? You will be given a new spirit. You will be given a new heart. And Jesus steps onto the scene in John chapter 2. And one of the first things he does, he heads straight for the temple. And he shows up at the temple and he can't believe what he sees. The people there have turned it into a marketplace. And so he gets angry and he starts upturning the tables. And the leaders of the temple corner him and they're angry with him. And they ask him this question. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus responds this way in John 2, 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his body. He's talking about, if you're following on your notes, the glory of God has returned in Jesus, who is the new temple. His glory will no longer be limited to a physical building. His glory has come to be present with his people. We no longer have to go to a place to encounter God. Praise God. God has come to us so that we can encounter him wherever and whenever. And it's this God who came to us who has given us that new spirit that was promised and that new heart. Now, Jeff's going to talk more about that next week, and I don't want to ruin it. 
So let's just pause here. And for the rest of our time this morning, let's just consider this question together. What on earth does this part of God's story have to do with our story? What can a remnant of people who have returned from exile teach us about how to live out our story here and now? Now, I got to be totally honest with you. When I first got assigned this passage, this part of God's story, I was totally bummed out. Because I'm thinking, how in the world is this part of God's story going to apply to our lives? But the more I dug into it, friends, the more I am convinced that this has something extremely important for us to say today as followers of Jesus. You see, the people in this part of the story are living, what I would say, in between the times, so to speak, right? They are living at the beginning of the restoration, but they're still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. And are we not in the same situation as followers of Jesus today? You see, in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Good news for all nations. He has arrived. That is his message all throughout his life. The kingdom of God has arrived. You, yes, you, you can be a part of it. You can receive a new spirit and a new heart. You can walk with God. Paul tells us the glory of God now resides in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit if you have received that truth. But in another sense, the kingdom of God has not fully arrived. We just gotta step outside these doors to realize that. There's still pain, there's still suffering, there's still sin, there's still heartache, there's still opposition to Jesus and his message. And so here we are, we're waiting. We're waiting for his return to make all things right. Scholars call this living between the now and the not yet. One of the artists this week will put up her picture. Her name is Morgan Young. Here's what she wrote about her painting, and I think this really nails, nails it on the head. When I read the description of the return, what really struck out to me was now but not yet. These people were returning to a place that God had created for them, their home, and there was so much joy in the celebration of this return. However, there was also mourning since they knew what they had once would be no more. Just as the Israelites were excited for their new now and continued to yearn for God's kingdom to be fulfilled, we are called to live fully for Christ in our now and yet yearn for God's kingdom to fully come. Do you feel that tension in your life? Living in the now and not yet? Maybe you've experienced the forgiveness and the redemption that you can have in Christ Jesus and yet there's still this longing there's still this desire for those things to be fully redeemed, fully met. Everyone in this room experiences this. We have broken relationships. We are selfish. I'm selfish, I'll speak for myself. We look outside and we see these terrible things like racism and sex trafficking. It is so easy It is so easy as followers of Jesus to look around and to look into my own life and just get so discouraged. How long, O Lord, the psalmist would say. So what do we do? Well, in many ways, if you're following on your notes, God is still looking for a remnant who will remain faithful today. God is still looking for a remnant who will remain faithful in the now and the not yet. And just like the Israelites in this part of God's story, we're faced with a decision of whether we're going to remain faithful to the Lord or we're going to compromise like those who assimilated to their culture and chose not to return. And so as we close, 
let's bring this home and really make this story a part of our story. I'm going to look at four ideas based on Ezra 3 about how we can live as the remnant between the now and the not yet of God's kingdom, how you can make this part of God's story your story. Number one, first thing I noticed is that we must gather in unity as God's people. We must gather in unity as God's people. Where am I getting that? I got that from verse 1 when it said the people gathered together as one to rebuild the temple. Unity is essential if the people of God are to flourish. If you're at all familiar with the history of Israel, you realize unity wasn't one of their strong suits. The northern kingdom breaks off from the southern kingdom, and not only do they break off, but they go to war against one another. But here, as they wait for restoration, they are united as one. In the same way, friends, as the church, as we wait for our full restoration, we must be united as one. We can allow no division to tear us apart. There's enough opposition facing us from the outside. We can't allow it to creep in on the inside as well. So we fight for unity. We fight, as we say here at our church, for right relationships. Sometimes that means humbling ourselves. Taking the lower road so that relationships can be well instead of always thinking, I got to be right in this situation I want to be right with you, more importantly. Now, I thought about that, and even bigger than relating rightly is this idea of I need others in this journey. You can't do the Christian life by yourself. We are meant to do life together with others. We need people to sharpen us and encourage us. That's why it's so important. We gather together, yes, on Sunday mornings, but also with others throughout the week in smaller ways. As we continue to try to be the remnant of faithful people in this world, we need others to encourage us in our journey. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, and it was a very challenging time in my life. I call it my wilderness time. Because every morning I'd go to a lecture, and I'd hear things that just, they didn't line up with what I believed. And friends, i got to say, I don't know if I would have made it out there with my faith intact if it weren't for the fact that God had given me the gift of a few guys who shared my beliefs, and after every lecture, we'd go to the cafeteria, I could bring you to the table right now today, and we would talk about, here's why we can believe what we believe. Here's why we can still stand firm on the word of God. I don't know where I would be if it weren't for all those guys, and I just want to say to you, you need that. You need people who can speak truth into your life and to encourage you in the seasons of life when they get difficult. So unity, number one. Second idea I got here is we can't let fear keep us from obedience. This is a big one today. I'm drawn to verse three of this story where it said, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar. Despite the opposition, the remnant remained faithful to obey God's command. I don't think you need me to stand up here to tell you it's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus in our culture today, do you? I'm not trying to be an Eeyore. But I'm also not going to stick my head in the sand as one of your spiritual leaders. I know. I'm sure you face it in your workplaces, in your schools. I mean, just last night, I kid you not, Peggy and I are dealing with a situation where our son was placed in a very difficult situation. It's just harder and harder to follow Jesus. Today, the word Christian means things like what? Intolerant. Closed-minded. 
And so we're faced with more and more opposition. And so I'm left with two options at that point. The same two options the people in this part of God's story are left with. I can either compromise and assimilate with the culture around me, or I can continue to stand firm and remain faithful like the remnant. I got to tell you, the thing that struck out most to me this week was this whole idea of a remnant. I did not realize how much this word is sprinkled throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. God will always have a remnant of faithful people. For that, you can be sure. Only 42,000 people returned. The rest just stayed where they were, though, and they assimilated. Lest I judge them too quickly. It is so easy for me to do the same thing in my life. Just to compromise a little bit here, compromise a little bit there, instead of wholeheartedly following the word of God as my compass in life, no matter what the cost is for me. When I was in high school, our youth pastor was doing a series on biblical sexuality. Now, the good news is we had a bunch of our friends who weren't Christians coming to our youth group. It was an exciting time. And then he started this series on biblical sexuality. And I can remember the time I was sitting in front of several of them, one of them in particular. And he was talking about God's vision of what sex looks like. And this guy was whispering in my ear. I could still feel his hot breath on my ear. You don't believe this, do you? This is ridiculous. Who can possibly live this kind of way? Gosh, that was a moment of truth for me. And I walked away from that saying, yes, yeah, I do believe this. I do believe that God's way of living is the best way of living. As we would wait for God to renew all things and bring about our full redemption, I got to tell you, the temptation to assimilate is in our face every single day. But Jesus says, do not grow weary. Do not give up. As you wait for my return, many will grow tired of seeking and obeying me. Some will even depart from the faith, Paul says. But there will always be a faithful remnant. And by God's grace, and it is all God's grace, I want to count myself among that number. I want to trust that his story is the best story to live. What about you? Third idea from this passage about how we can live in between the times is that we continue the work of advancing God's kingdom. I love how Haggai said, yeah, really this isn't as great as it was supposed to be, but keep working. Keep building. Keep doing the thing that I've called you to do in the same way the church we've been commissioned with the work to do. People need to hear the gospel. The word of God needs to be preached and taught. Countless physical needs remain unmet in our city, don't they? Social justice issues are crying out for our attention. We are to continue the Lord's labor. We are to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, as Chuck reminded us a couple weeks ago. But it is so easy for me to lose sight of that and to become so focused on building my own kingdom. You know, one of the things that Haggai told these people repeatedly is they had stopped building the temple in order to focus on building their own homes. And he says, get your priorities straight. First you build the Lord's home, then you worry about your own kingdoms. Ouch. That hurts. That hits a little too close to home for me. Sometimes I get so busy building my own kingdom that I neglect my higher calling. I can get so focused on things like my title, my grades, my bank account, the number of Instagram likes I get. 
my wardrobe, I forget that in the end, what are those things really going to matter? In the end, most of my kingdom is going to disappear, in fact. What will matter most is what have I done? What have I done to help God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven? Last idea I have for us is we can trust that one day all our expectations will be met. You already know this. I already know this. Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. He told his disciples again and again, you're going to face the same things I faced. To follow me is to take up your cross. Deny yourself. And yet, here's what he said to them after explaining all of that in John 16, I have told you these things so that in you, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Read the rest of that with me. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How do you live today as a remnant in the now and not yet in that tension? Well, we do it by remembering that one day our king will come back in all of his glory and he will make all things right. He will establish his kingdom and we will be his people forever and ever. There will be no more evil. There will be no more weeping, no more disease, no more Pinterest fails. The king will come again, and we will rule with him forever. That is a day worth waiting for. That is a day worth living for. So let us not lose hope. As we close, here's the question I want us to consider as we go to a time of prayer together. Will we remain faithful as we wait for Christ's return? Will we remain faithful in the now and the not yet. As we consider that, let's uh, put our notes away. I've come to realize in my own life, I, I like to learn things, I like to know some things, but then it comes, comes down to the heart of the matter, when am I gonna do something about it? And so I'm going to ask you to bow your head right now, and we're going to consider that question by thinking about those four ideas from Ezra 3 together. So Father, first, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that we get to live in this part of your story. Thank you that Jesus has come in his full glory and that he has given us a new heart and a new spirit. A spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. You have made yourself known and we can know you. Your kingdom has come and we can be a part of it. And yet we just confess to you, just like the people in this time, it's hard sometimes to follow you. But we want to be the remnant, those who are faithful. And so we just open up our hearts to you right now and we consider these questions together. We consider this idea of unity and how important it is, and we ask, am I at odds with someone in this church or in my small group? What would it look like if that's true for you to pursue unity in that situation?
When will we start, stop being so concerned about being right and be more concerned about relating rightly? If he's bringing someone to your mind right now, as Jesus would say, leave your gift at the altar and go to them as soon as you can. There's too much at stake. Lord, are there any areas in my life where I'm compromising because of fear? It's just easier to assimilate sometimes. Teach me what it means to stand steadfast in your word. To trust that your story is the better story no matter what it might cost me. Father, examine my heart. Am I working to advance your kingdom or my kingdom? How have you gifted me? What passions have you given me so that I could build up the body of Christ? Who are the neighbors you've placed in my path? What are the ministries in this city and world that you've equipped me? Let us be a people who offer our lives as living sacrifices. And finally, Lord, am I really believing that only you can ultimately fulfill my expectations? there things that I'm going to that I'm drawn to that I think are going to fulfill me and satisfy me but I know that they're only going to leave me empty I confess that to you you've given us that new heart and that new spirit and I want to pray for everyone in this room who has that that they would be encouraged today, that they would know your love and that they would rest assured that one day the kingdom is coming again and you will reign and rule in your rightful place and we will be with you and that that is a day worth living for. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.